Okay, guys, we're in lesson 10. We're going to talk about elders and uh, slaves. And they're not to be equated, okay? Elders and slaves. Elders and slaves. We're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through chapter 6, verse 2. So let me kind of remind you, what is an elder? What is an elder? Well, an elder is, according to the scripture, there's three different terms that refer to the same thing. There's overseer, elder, pastor. They are, the elders of the church are the, quote, pastors or the overseers of the church. So when we talk about elders in the church, we're really talking about the overseers or those who shepherd the church, the pastors, okay? So all three terms are used in scripture to refer to the same person or persons, okay? And always they're referred to in the plural, okay? Always they are referred to in the plural, okay? Always they're referred to in the plural. And I think there's a reason for the plurality of elders. What do you think the biggest reason for a plurality of elders is? Anybody? Why should there be a plurality of elders in a church? Okay, to watch over each other, guard over each other. Because what could be the danger if you just have one elder? What's the danger? Well, it's not necessarily opinions, but it could be you're going by his opinion. But when you have a plurality of elders, they guard the doctrinal purity of the direction of the church. Do you understand? Okay, because if you just have one elder, it could become a one-man show, right? And some churches operate that way, right? Okay? So there's accountability. I think that's the word we're talking about there, Bruce. There's accountability with a plurality of elders. So we're going to look at this passage today. Now we're going to say, you say, George, hold on a second. I understand the elder thing, but we're going to talk about slaves. We don't have slaves today in our culture. Well, let me explain to you, in the American mindset and culture, when we think of slavery, we think of uh, the slavery that occurred in really the first 250 years of our existence in North America. You say, well, wait a minute, George. We were only 200 years old. Slavery ended in the 1800s. Well, no, from the very beginning, when the colonies were started, slavery existed up until the point of the Civil War. And so in our mindset, when we think of slavery, we think of Southern slavery, And yes, that is terrible, and we need to acknowledge that. But when we talk about biblical slavery that is listed here in this culture, it is, there are some similarities, but there are a lot of differences. So let me explain to you the differences first before we go on to our passage. First of all, I want you to recognize that in the Roman Empire, okay, everybody understand the Roman Empire extended from what? Spain, all the way around the Mediterranean, all the way into North Africa, to the top of North Africa. That was the Roman Empire. Now, most of the Roman Empire, as far as population, were slaves. Most of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Very few people were freedmen, or even citizens. Very few. So, 
In Roman slavery, most people were slaves, so they were owned by somebody else. In fact, here's the interesting thing about Roman slavery. A Roman slave could own another slave. A Roman slave could own another slave. Roman slaves were of various economic status and function. So you had doctors who were slaves, lawyers who were slaves, bakers who were slaves. They weren't just common laborers. They were of very, very differing statuses in society. There were wealthy slaves. There were poor slaves, but there were wealthy slaves. So I want you to understand the whole purpose of slavery was to benefit who? The freed people. Now, the similarities are Roman slavery, you became the sole property of whoever, and they could do with you whatever they wanted without any repercussion. They could kill you, not a problem. You were a slave. So so there are some similarities to what we know of as slavery from our history, but I want you to understand it was a society that functioned mostly under most people being slaves, okay? So I want you to keep that in perspective when we talk about what Paul is saying here today. You say, okay, George, that's great. That's Roman slavery. We understand American slavery. That's still not our culture today. Well, when you look at what Paul's going to talk about today, it actually fits with something that we have today, and that is an employer and an employee role. Okay, yeah, because I'm a slave to the boss. You know what I'm saying? So, yes, that's true. There are some things that are similar, but I want you to see what I'm saying. So, first of all, how many of you can remember talking to some of your elders? We're in Pennsylvania. Fifty years ago, people owed their soul to who? The company. I mean, you drive through the villages around here, and what do you see? Houses that all look the same. Why? Because they were company houses. I remember folks over near Lori's area, there were some guys there that liked to do the metal detecting, and they used to like to go down to Sagamore, and the one thing that they always looked for were the tokens. What were the tokens? Well, that's what they got paid in, right? And the only place that you could use that token was where? The company store. Did you know what I'm saying? So you got, you didn't even get paid in dollars. So literally, it's almost like a form of what? Slavery. Yes. Okay, so we're going to talk about that today. All right? So let's talk about, first of all, let's look at verse 17 through 25. We're going to talk about elders. Look with me. Verse 17. Let elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And a laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in another person's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink any water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities." 
Some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, but those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Okay, so let's talk about this. We're going to talk about elders, first of all. He's going to talk about provision. Pastors who excel in leadership were considered worthy of double honor. So he's going to, he's wanting to, he's wanting to develop a mindset here among the church. He wants Timothy to help the church to understand that if they got a good pastor or a shepherd, elder, overseer, that they need to treat him worthy of honor. Okay? Worthy of honor. If they've got a good pastor, they need to treat him worthy of honor. And he said this is especially true for those who labor in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. All right? So there's a mindset the church needs to take care of their pastors. Okay? The church needs to take care of their pastors. You say, well, George, that's just assumed. That's just automatically assumed that that should happen. No, it isn't. It's not assumed. It might be assumed in our church, but I'm going to be honest with you folks, there are churches where that doesn't happen. Okay? There are mindsets where that doesn't happen, where the pastor is not taken care of. Okay? And uh, and and I and I read all kinds of reactions to that. You say, are there churches that are like that? Yeah, there are churches that are like that. Thankfully, we're not. Okay? Thankfully, we're not. And so he's saying here, the church is responsible to take care of its pastor, okay? So Paul provides scriptural support for his instructions concerning providing for pastors. So he provides scriptural instructions here. He points out some references to show that, hey, you need to take care of your pastor. Let's go on, because I feel uncomfortable talking about this, okay? Let's, let's move on to verse 19 and 20. He's going to talk about personal sin, now, let's just stop for a moment. Are pastors perfect? No. Pastors sin, right? Because pastors are human beings. So pastors will do wrong things, right? And, and so there is a method now that he's going to talk about. How do you confront a pastor or an elder when they sin? Okay. So I want you to notice with me verse 19 and 20. Let me read these to you again. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sitting rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Okay, so when accusing an elder of sin, there must be two or three witnesses. Why would there need to be two or three witnesses? Okay, so you hear what Bruce is saying. So it avoids the possibility if somebody has a personal vendetta, okay, of them maybe bringing up a lie, okay? Why else? So it's so you don't want to have it be one person against another person's word, okay? All right, that's good. There's other reasons why. Anybody else think of another reason? Okay, Denny says to help in counseling the pastor, you mean? Okay, possibly. What were you going to say, Karen? What's that? 
yeah, it's that's what uh, that's what uh, Tammy was saying. Hi, Tammy. <laughs> I haven't had enough tea this morning. Okay, I think I got to go a little bit harder than green tea on Sunday morning. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Here, I'll give. Okay. There's a cooperation between them. Okay. All right. Here's another reason. Okay. There could be several reasons. Number one, because you say, well, what if I'm the only one who witnesses it? Then I can't bring the accusation against it. Okay. However, you might think that, but here's the thing. But what if there are two or three of you that have witnessed the same behavior, but in different instances? It doesn't mean two or three witnesses of the same incident. Do you understand? Because it might just be one pastor with one action, okay? And you're like, well, there was nobody else around, so I can't say anything. No, but if you're talking to people and they and there's two or three that say, well, yeah, that that thing that happened with you happened over here with this person. There's a pat. You you know what I'm saying? Two or three can establish a pattern of behavior. Do you understand what I'm saying? A pattern of behavior. So you have to have people to establish that something is going wrong. Do you understand? Something is going wrong. All right? Any questions there? There are going to be times when things need to be dealt with. And there's a proper way to handle them. And there are certain things that need to be dealt with within the church. And so be it. Let's deal with them. Let's deal with them biblically. So what are you talking about, George, about this situation? Well, listen, if a guy has a pattern of being rude and so forth and a pattern of how he treats people and stuff, that's one thing. But it's in a pattern of abuse that's criminal. You don't even bring that to the church. Who do you go to? The authorities. Does everybody understand that we're all on the same page here? Okay. Here's what's going on. The sin of an elder must be addressed publicly in order to warn the church. Now, here's the here's the difference, though. Okay, so let's say, all right, I'll use me. Let's say two or three witnesses come up to the other leaders of our church, and they say, look, hey, we got a real problem with George. This is what George is doing, and it's established, and George is confronted. Now, George has a choice, as in with everybody who's confronted by sin. What's the choice? Repent or what? Repent or not repent. And if it's not repenting, George needs to step down, right? Okay. But if George repents, now here's what the, here's the thing. The difference with a pastor, with a leader, for the sake of the whole church, is it's got to be addressed publicly. So the elders... The joint, in our, in our circumstance, it would be the joint board would come to the church and say, hey, church, we've had some accusations against George, and this is the issue, and he's responded, we're working with him on it, but we want to let you know that we're dealing with it. Or, George hasn't dealt with it. Do you know what I'm saying? George hasn't dealt with it. The most serious accusation against a pastor is, and it happens all the time, at a lot of different churches, Sexual immorality, okay? Sexual immorality. Does that happen? Yeah, it happens. You'd be surprised how it happens, okay? Now, how do you respond to that? So let me go ahead and tell you how you respond to it. 
He's done. Period. He's done. If he's done that kind of a sin, he's done. Don't even entertain, well, there's forgiveness. What about King David? I hear that all the time. What about King David? Moses killed somebody. Paul killed somebody. Hold on a second. Paul killed somebody before he got saved. Different culture. He was acting within their standard of government then. David committed adultery, but here's the thing. You don't resign from being the king. Did you understand what I'm saying? You're a king till you die or somebody else wipes you out. Different thing. When you talk about a pastor, you're talking about a man who's supposed to reflect, here's the issue, a character, which we know from the qualifications that we've already gone through, and he's no longer reflecting that character. And character isn't rebuilt overnight. If you want to write that down, write it down. Character isn't rebuilt overnight. So he's done. So that's why you make it public. Listen, folks, that is an offense that, you, do you understand what I'm saying? Look, listen to what Proverbs says. Can you take fire to your bosom and not be burned? Proverbs talks about how that's a sin that cannot be removed. Now, is there a sin? Can it be forgiven? Yes. But the implications of that and the, and the problem of that is tremendous. And so what am I saying that? We need to come to a, to a conclusion here. We have a process that the scripture outlines of how to deal with issues. And then, look, there are some issues that may require dealing with, and it has to be dealt with what? Publicly. Do you understand what I'm saying? Why? Because it affects all of us. It affects all of us. Let's go on. Anybody got a question, first of all? Don't want to stop you if you don't... Anybody got a question or a comment? Yeah, John. Okay. I, I personally don't think so, John. Okay. All right, and I'll tell you why. If you look at the qualifications, which we've gone through, and we'll go through them again when we go through Titus, it talks about him having his house in order. It talks about him being above reproach, that there's no standing accusation against him. Um, it talks about his marriage, being a one-woman man, okay? Um, I think there is forgiveness, and I think that he can be restored, but when it comes to being a leader in the church, it's kind of like being a Navy SEAL. Now, we under, what, I'm, what do you mean it's a Navy SEAL? Are you a Navy SEAL? Look, yeah, like I'm physically looking like a Navy SEAL here, okay? No, that's not what I mean. Like in the military, like I, you know, I was raised in a military home in the Army, okay? I was in the National Guard, went through the military... And there was there were these guys who were rangers and green berets. Do you, do you understand? And, and it was already assumed that anybody could try out for that, but only certain people who met qualifications could be that. And I didn't sit around being a chaplain's assistant in the in the army national guard saying, "Oh, I wish I was a ranger," you know what I'm saying, or in the 82nd Airborne or whatever. 
too bad they won't let me do that. You know what I'm saying? They're, no, it, you knew that those guys were, because they had to fulfill a certain function. Leaders in a church have to fulfill a certain function. Does everybody understand? And it's not that we want everybody to do that. It's that they have to serve a certain function that's guiding the rest of us in what? Our spiritual lives and teaching and so forth. So, John, no. No, I don't think so because, listen, and I know this as a pastor, you talk to, if you talk into homes where there's been sexual infidelity, it takes a long time for healing to take place, if it ever does in those homes. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's, there's a problem there. Do you understand? Because you've got to work through some things. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, so let me ask you a question. I think some of us know who people who are alcoholics, right? We live in a culture where alcoholics, or in this day, drug drug issues, right? Okay. Are they ever over it? No. How easy would it be for them to go back into it? Very easy, right? Listen, infidelity is just as bad. I'm just being honest with you. Infidelity is just as bad. And if given the right circumstances, the right situation, nobody is immune from it. Do you understand what I'm saying? And could possibly drift off into it. So no, I think precaution, I think it's better to err on the side of caution than grace in that area. Because somebody said, well, you're not being gracious, George. Well, it's not an issue of being gracious. It's an issue of doing what's right for the church. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, the guy's got abilities. Look, you're not selected to be a pastor just because of your gifts. You're selected to be a pastor because of your character. Do you understand what I'm saying? Look, we need to take serious the standard by which our leaders... So I'm not just talking about myself. In our church, we have three other men who are elders. And we're all equal. Okay, so George is not, George is maybe first among equals, but that doesn't mean I'm it. I'm among men who are equals to me. And we're the elders of the church. And so there's a standard by which we need to operate by. Do you understand what I'm saying? So there's, there's a way to approach it because I've been in churches where people are like, oh, I can't believe that. And they'll be quiet. They won't say anything. No, no, that's not. Yeah, but everybody knows. But everybody knows. And what does that do to the testimony of a church in a community? Do you know what I'm saying? Okay, let's go on. He's going to talk about some personal instructions. Paul solemnly charges that all things must be done without prejudice and partiality. So he's saying to the elders, you need to do all things without prejudice or partiality. Why would he have to say that to someone who's going to be an elder? Why would he have to say that you need to do all things without prejudice and partiality? Why, why would he have to say that? Well, we all have prejudice and partiality. And if I'm an elder, and Bruce, you're an elder, 
Uh, Brad's an elder. Randy, who's teaching, is an elder. If we operated based upon our prejudice and partiality, what does that mean as far as ministering to the body of believers in this church? Wouldn't happen because we would only focus on who? Yeah, the people we like. You know what I'm saying? And if we had an attitude towards those who maybe are on a different social economic status or I don't like people with a twangy voice or, or whatever, blah, 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 you know what I'm saying? Uh, you, you, you find yourself only ministering to certain people. And that happens in churches. I've been there where it seems like the only people who are ministered to are the business people. You been in a church like that? James talks about that in James chapter 5. When the rich guy comes in with all his rings, you give him the place of honor, but a poor one comes in, you say, wait a minute now, here, you sit at his footstool. You know, you sit at his feet or whatever. You know, we're not to be partial. So it's a reiteration of James here, okay? You and I are not to be partial or, or to act with prejudice, Okay? Now, leaders must not hastily, must not be hastily selected and ordained for ministry in the church. Now, this is the one, I've made this mistake several times too. When we talk about the leadership of a church, I've already told you how important it is, right? Because it's so important, You've got to really think about who you're going to select as a leader and just don't select any guy. Well, there's so-and-so. He's a doctor. Let's select him. Well, you know what? He may be a doctor, but he may not be a good church leader. Or he may be a good businessman, but he may not be a good church leader. Do you understand what I'm saying? And you just don't want to select anybody. We've already seen Timothy talk earlier about not selecting a novice. Don't select somebody who's immature. He's saying here you need to be cautious and not just select anybody to be a leader because who's going to pay for it later? Yeah, the church is going to pay for it. Did you understand what I'm saying? Wisdom needs to be sought out in selecting who the leaders are. See, this is what I want to say. You know, Like if a church has, like we have... In our constitution, we can have up to seven elders and up to seven trustees. And, you know, here's the thing. I hate hearing people say, well, we've got three slots. We've got four slots open on the elders. We need to get four more elders in there. No, we don't. Because what if we don't have four more guys who are qualified to be the elders? Do you understand what I'm saying? And if you put four guys who aren't qualified to be the elders, what are we inviting to happen in our midst? Problems. Did you understand what I'm saying? Problems. So he's saying leaders must not be hastily selected and ordained for ministry in the church. The elder must not, sh- must not share in anyone's sin and keep himself pure. So this is talking about the way he lives his life. He must not share... In anyone's sin. What is he talking about there? Well, he, he, he needs to be careful not to involve himself in the corrupt dealings of other people. Okay? Not to involve himself in the corrupt dealings of other people. Because that's going to be not just reflected on him, but who ultimately is it reflected on? Hey, if the pastor involves himself in a shady deal, who gets the blame? Not just the pastor, but who? 
the whole church. I can't believe you're going to that church. Paul urges Timothy to drink wine instead of water for his health's sake. Now, this is interesting because we, you know, in this instance, he's telling Timothy to drink wine. So let me just explain something to you here. First of all, why wine instead of water? Well, in their culture, water was unsafe to drink. Okay, so let's say right now, I went down, just down here below to Anderson Creek. And I got a gallon of water from Anderson Creek. And I brought it up here and I poured out little bitty cups. And I said, hey folks, this is pure water, I want you to drink it. And you knew it was from the creek down here. What would you do? Would you drink it? No. In fact, I was talking to Bob over here during the week, and Bob used to live right down here on Pine Street, and he was telling me some stories about my neighbors who are no longer there. Back when he was a boy, what they used to throw out on the bank of the creek and wait for the water to wash it all away. And the pipes that used to come from the houses into the creek. Now, you all remember those days, right, before we put up sewage systems. And you wouldn't want to drink from what? The creek. Why? Because you would get what? Sick. See, it's the same thing in his culture. In fact, there's a lot of places around the world that it's still the same deal. The safest thing to drink in the Roman culture was what? Wine. And it wasn't Welch's grape juice. That was in 1850, okay, that that was created by a Methodist layman, all right? Now, what am I saying here? Are you saying, George, it's okay to drink? I'm not telling you that the Scripture forbids you from drinking. What the Scripture forbids you from is what? Being drunk, being controlled by it. And there's a fine line there, and everybody has a different line as to where that is. Okay? But in this instance, he's giving him some personal instructions for his stomach's sake. I guess Timothy, obviously, history shows that he had some health issues. And the thing for him to do was not to drink water, but to drink wine. Okay? Wine. And, and the insinuation is, is there's something in the wine that's going to help him and usually that means there's a little bit of what? Alcoholic content. So for instance, like when George gets sick, and I haven't gotten sick lately, okay? And I don't want to, so don't come breathe on me, all right? But Lori will tell you what I normally do when I get a cold is, is I go to the medicine cabinet and I get NyQuil. And I'll drink a swig of NyQuil and go to bed. What's in NyQuil? Yeah, there's a little bit of alcohol there. You think they took that out? Okay, well, whatever, it still works, okay, okay. They replaced it with something, okay, so, but when it didn't work, when it, when they didn't replace it, I would use that, okay, but my whole point is, that's not the issue. The issue is, here he's told to do, use for taking care of him, but I wanted to talk about a broader subject here, and that is, it's about drunkenness that's forbidden, right? Okay. The nature of people. Paul points out that some people's sins are evident immediately while others appear later. Isn't that true? Some people, they're obvious. See, this is why you can't, you can't have an attitude towards people. Well, you know, so-and-so, they're always doing this and they're doing that. 
Fine, but what about the quiet guy in the church? He's got sins too. It's just that his aren't what? Out in the open. And Paul's saying that, that one day they will be open. They will be evident to all. Do you understand? Everything will come out in the end. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everything's going to come out in the end. So he points out that some people's sins are evident immediately while others appear later. He also points out that some people's good works are evident now while others appear later. What does that mean? Well, there are some people who do good things you wouldn't even know. Hey, folks, you know what? I've been here almost 17 years now. April 1st will be 17 years. We have some great people in this church. What do you mean by that? Because I see them do things for the benefit of the church during the week. Nobody else knows about it. They don't walk around and say, I did this. They do it quietly, humbly, and they'll get their reward. And it's not just for the church. These same people do things for other people. And nobody knows. No, they don't go around tooting their horn. See, this is the point that he's making. Some people, their, their good deeds are evident. But then there are others. It'll become evident. You know what I'm saying? It'll become evident. Like, you know, what the favorite illustration for me in Scripture is, is when Jesus talks about the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And he'll look at him and say, when I was naked, you did this for me. And when I was in prison, you did this for me. And when I was hungry, you did this for me. And they'll say, Lord, Lord, when, when did we do that to you? And he'll say, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he commends them and says, enter into the joy of my rest. That's the point here that he's making here in this passage. 